Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. In a little while, we're going to be turning back to Genesis chapter 1. But I want to begin by reading the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 11. This is the great hall of faith. It's a record of the faith of our forefathers. And a general statement, however, is said with respect to uh, faith in general. And we find out concerning the faith of God's people uh, that it it fixes itself upon uh, the creation of the universe. So the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11, we read, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And then notice these words. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Once again, let's pray for the grace and help of God as we open up his word. Most gracious and blessed God, we do thank you that all around us, We see the planets, the stars, we see the uh, mountains and everything else that surrounds us. And again and again, we hear the testimony, the voice, as it were, of these things that you have made, uh, saying to us, the hand that has made us is divine. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to recognize your majesty, that you would bring us to the place where we worship you, we don't quarrel with your word, but we submit to it, and believe it and give you glory. And we pray, Lord, that any way in which our thoughts are not made subject to your word, that by your spirit you would bring us into submission to the teaching of your holy word. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, according to the words that we just read from Hebrews chapter 11, It is by faith that we understand that the world that we live in, along with the vast universe that surrounds us, how these things were framed by the word of God. And it's also by faith that we understand that God did not make the universe and everything in it by fashioning these things from pre-existing materials. The third verse, it speaks about the way in which the things which were seen were not made of the things which are visible, in other words, material uh, things. God spoke the universe into existence. He created the universe out of nothing. Now, all around us, there is ample evidence of the handiwork of of a divine designer. And if you were to visit Florence, Italy, and you were to see there Michelangelo's famous statue of David, you would never imagine that that statue was sculpted by the natural forces of wind and rain, that it just evolved into its present condition by thousands of years, wind blowing in the exact places and the rain hitting it in just the right way and wearing the stone down in the perfect way in which it has its shape at this time. None of us would imagine for a moment that that would be true. The evidence of a designer stares us right in the face when we look at that statue. And even so, what we see in the created wonders of God that surround us in every direction 
is, as John Calvin puts it, the theater of God's glory. But because none of us were present ever to observe what took place when God created the universe, our acceptance of the book of Genesis account is an act of faith. We see testimonies of God's creative work, but we weren't there to see the actual creation itself, and therefore we receive it by faith. And the evidence overwhelmingly points to creation, but because we didn't see it, the biblical account requires that we exercise our faith. And at the same time, belief in the theory of evolution, it also requires faith. I think even far greater faith. There's far more evidence that stares us in the face of a designer than the whole idea that all of this happened by accident and time and chance and so forth. Well, evolutionists, they say that it all started with a big bang. And I think that that whole theory, it, it, it suspends all credulity to try to believe it. It reminds me about a friend of mine that I had in the first year of my seminary training. And he was telling me about his little girl and the explanation that she gave for a broken window. And she said, well, I was just standing there looking at it, and it just broke all by itself. And, and so this is the kind of excuses you see little children might make. Well, at the bottom of what the evolutionist says, it's even more ludicrous than that. Not just that a window broke all by itself, but that this whole vast universe created itself. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 2 tells us, that God created the universe without the use of any pre-existing materials. I said verse 2, verse 3. He created, in other words, from nothing, and we accept this by faith. And I believe, therefore, what Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton once said, I think it hits the nail right on the head, when he at one point wrote this. It is absurd for the evolutionists to complain that it is unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing, and then pretend that it is more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. Well, at this point, I think we still have to be careful. Even if all we had was the scientific evidence, the evidence points to a divine designer. But our belief in the doctrine of creation, it doesn't first and foremost rest upon the findings of science. We accept this doctrine first and foremost because of what we read in the word of God. And we receive the Bible as the very word of God because of the way the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts that it is indeed the word of God. We read it and we we, we know God is speaking to us through this book. And just as our confession of faith says of the scriptures, the heavenliness of its matter, it recites the evidence that this is of God, the heavenliness of its matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So all these evidences, all these perfections that say this is God's word, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance 
of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. The primary ground of our belief in the doctrine of creation, likewise, is not something that these scientists have told us or what we can see, the evidence that's around us, but it's because we hear what God has said to us in his word. And this is our foundation. Above all else, this is, uh, this is uh, the way we accept it as true. And, and the witness of the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that indeed this is the word of God. Now as we examine what we read in Genesis chapter 1, it's exceedingly important that we understand this basic, pre- this basic premise You see, in our day, it's virtually impossible for us to read Genesis 1 without having to wrestle with the relationship between Scripture and science. And this is especially true as we seek to interpret what Genesis 1 has to say about the six days of creation. Now, in recent sermons upon this chapter, we've been giving these introductory sermons because this is such a battleground, I think no greater battleground in, in the spiritual realm, uh, this is such a battleground, we need to, to refute the, the errors that have come up in these centuries about the interpretation of these six days of creation. And we have seen uh, the errors of the day-age theory, and then in our last sermon we began to address what we have called the literary framework view of Genesis chapter 1. And it's difficult to escape the impression that some of those that adhere to a non-literal, non-chronological view of the days of Genesis. They don't see it as being history. Day one did this, day two this happened, day three, etc., just the way it's told in Genesis 1. They don't believe it that way. But they think it's, you see, a non-literal thing. It's more of a poetic thing. It's not a historic account. And they, they come up with this view, we believe, because of their desire to escape the difficulties of reconciling the Genesis account with the so-called findings of science. And during the last century, in some evangelical circles, the view has gained popularity that God has given one revelation in the Bible and another revelation in nature. And there is a second sense in which there is uh, God does give us There is this general revelation in creation, but there's this idea that there are these two equal revelations, the scripture and nature. And each of these revelations in its own sphere is thought to be authoritative. And according to this modern view, it's the job of the theologian to take care of the one. It's your job, preacher, to just preach the scripture, and it's the job of the scientist to interpret nature. And it's the scientist that's to tell us what nature says, what that authoritative revelation says. But eventually this results in the interpretation of scripture being shaped so that it fits science. And it's never the other way around with these people that science would be shaped by scripture. In an address that was given at a gathering of the Evangelical Theological Society back in 1962, Dr. John Whitcomb, a great defender of creation, he spoke at the Bible college I went to years ago. He describes what took place or what takes place. Whenever there is an apparent conflict between the conclusions of the scientist and the conclusions of the theologian, especially with regard to such problems as the origin of the universe, the solar system, earth, animal life, and man, 
the effects of the Edenic curse, and the magnitude and effects of the Noahic deluge, the theologian must rethink, this is the way this modern theory goes, the theologian must rethink his interpretation of the scriptures at these points in such a way as to bring it into harmony with the general consensus of scientific opinion on these matters. Since the Bible is not a textbook on science, and these problems overlap the territory in which science alone must give us the detailed and authoritative answers. But you see, whenever the view is entertained that there are these two revelations, the Bible and nature, each of them authoritative in its own realm, it's always the Bible, you see, that has to bow to science, the way that people think here. And we're never told that science needs to be corrected according to what the scriptures have to say. But as Isaiah says, all flesh is grass, including scientists. All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In his unchanging word, God has given us information about creation that we could have received in no other way but by divine revelation because nobody was there to observe it when it happened. And it can't be repeated. You can't take it back into the lab and do a repeat examination uh, and, and examine what took place. But we must keep this in mind once again as we examine the literary framework of Genesis chapter 1 that it's the Bible that should interpret science and not the, way, the other way around. Well, we began in our last sermon with a presentation of this view that we're refuting, that's just ripping apart lots of church and denominations, this literary framework view of, the, of Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we've given some the, the main points and your outlines that uh, were sent out on, on, online, and uh, you can be checking that out. I want to just highlight before we move on the two main points that we made. And this view, it, it understands Genesis 1 to be an artistic, literary presentation of creation, and it's not to be taken literally or historically or chronologically. In other words, Genesis 1 is not a record of what actually happened, you see, that's what they say, but it's the literary framework within which in God teaches us about himself and about his power, about his creation. And in our last sermon, we noted two of the most prominent arguments for this idea. And the first argument is that the days of Genesis 1 cannot be chronological without running into problems. The proponents of this view, they start with the premise that normal, ordinary providence had to be at work in Genesis 1. And they argue that if ordinary providence is at work in Genesis 1, you can't have light on day 1 before the sun on day 4. And you can't have vegetation on day three before the sun on day four. So they say the order you see of these days, it cannot be believed. And therefore, Genesis 1, we have to understand it not as a straightforward chronological account of what God did in creating the world. But this is to argue like a pagan. Because it assumes that God's not able to provide light apart from the sun. And the whole argument is like the naturalism of the evolutionist in its assumption that God is unable to keep vegetation alive for 24 hours until he brings the sun into existence or until he brings rain upon the earth. And so this is the argument, the first argument that these days 
uh, can't be chronological without running into problems. And then the second argument is that Genesis chapter 1 contains two triads, two groups of three. And the first is made up of kingdoms, and the second is made up of matching kings. And it's argued that if a chronological presentation of these days runs into, that it runs into insurmountable problems, then the days, therefore, must relate to each other in a non-chronological way. And it's a really a, a piece of poetry here. And it's a piece, they speak about a framework here. And it's not to be interpreted in a literal, historical, chronological way. And so on the charts that are there and, and the, on the board and also that were sent out in the, on, on, online, you can see that there are two columns. First, the column of the kingdoms, and then the column of the kings. And there are three days under each of these three, two columns. Day one, day two, and day three under kingdoms. And uh, day four, five, and six under kings. And in the, in the first column, you see the, with re respect to these, the luminaries of day four, the kings, they rule over the, of the domain or the kingdoms of, of the light and darkness of day one. That's, that's the way it's argued. The fish and the birds of day five, those are the kings of that kingdom, and the kingdom they rule over is what's there on, on, on day two, right across the same line you see on this chart that's there in front of you. So the framework view sees Genesis 1 as arranged not chronologically, but rather as a poem with six stanzas, and the first three stanzas creatively corresponding to the last three stanzas. The first giving us the kingdoms, and the last three giving us the kings that rule over those kingdoms. Well, we began in our last sermon to give you a refutation of this literary framework view. And first of all, we noted that in Genesis 1, this chapter contains all the marks of chronological history, not of poetry. And we particularly noted a, what's called the Wow consecutive. Wow is one of the Hebrew letters in the alphabet. It looks like, a, like a, just a straight line up and down with a little hook on the top of it. And it's added to other words. The way Hebrews would relate history is the verb always comes first. It's the very first word in the sentence. And this wow would be attached to that verb. And we would translate it, and it's in our various versions, as translated and, or translated then, or translated now. And when it's attached to verbs in the imperfect, it indicates consecutive chronological events. This is a Hebrew construction that's consistent throughout the whole Bible. And this construction is almost non-existent in Hebrew poetry. It's always in history. And to stress the fact that this is what God intended, this is, this, this is history, Genesis 1. This particular historical construction occurs in Genesis 1 no less than 51 times. Consistently, it is set forth in that same way as history in this chapter. And so if the tension of the writer of Genesis 1 was to give us poetry and a non-chronological view of the days, it seems strange that the author goes out of his way to emphasize chronology, consistently using the Hebrew construction that is used always in relating history. And this took place, and then this took place. There's that little and. And then this took place. That's the way the Hebrews would tell the story. 
And we also noted, I'm not going to go into details, the Hebrew verb forms. They're all used in such a way that it's always used with reference to history, not poetry. And there's also the absence of important features of poetry, such as figurative language and parallelism and so forth. These things are not there in Genesis chapter 1. But then we went into a little less detail with a second refutation of this literary framework, And it is that the parallels proposed by this framework view do not match up well. I'm not going to go over that ground again. If you want to, you can check out that sermon a couple weeks ago. But the parallels in these two columns, they seem like they neatly match. But when you really dig down into the details, they don't match whatsoever. But now I want to come to four other refutations this time allows. And this is what we want to look at in our time this morning. The third refutation of this framework idea is that it is too clever. And here I would like you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And here, when I say that it's too clever, I have in mind something we actually noted briefly in our last sermon. The figurative approach to Genesis 1 with its elaborate framework of kings and kingdoms that's there on the board there in front of you, this is something that nobody would have ever thought of, nor did anybody think of it, prior to the time when all of a sudden Charles Darwin came out with his Origin of the Species in 1859. And so then theologians started scratching their heads and they tried to see how they could reinterpret this chapter so it would fit Darwin's theory of evolution. But it never was, they never came up with this framework idea until then. And I don't know of any theologian, I don't know of any biblical scholar that proposed this interpretation prior to the arrival of John Darwin's theses. This makes me very suspicious of this interpretation. God gave his word to his people so that they could understand what he said. And why would God reveal something so basic? There's nothing more basic than how he created the universe. Everything is built upon that in the Bible. Why would he reveal something so basic? But nobody could figure it out for 1,800 years. Even actually more than that, after the time of Christ, it was all the centuries and millennia before the time of Christ. Nobody could figure it out until all of a sudden evolution came along and then people started reinterpreting this chapter. God gave the word to his people that they might read and understand what he said. So why would he reveal it in such a way that they could never understand it, apart from these scientific specialists? Why would God leave his people in darkness? until the first half of the 20th century. Well, God gave the Bible to all of his people. And this was his intention, that ordinary readers might read it and understand it. And this is what we refer to when we refer to the perpiscuity or of Scripture. It's the doctrine that Scripture is clear concerning its main message. It means, the word perspicuous, it means clear, it means plain, it means easily understood. And it was God's intention in giving his people the Bible that ordinary people using sound principles of interpretation would understand it. They don't need an elite group of interpreters or scientists to figure it out. Now this doesn't exclude the necessity of the Holy Spirit 
helping us to understand the spiritual aspects of his word. And this doesn't deny that there are certain nuances of scripture, that it's very helpful to know the Hebrew and the Greek. And you can find out more in terms of what's in the original if you are able to dig in that manner. But let's remember, it was originally given to those that read and, and, heard and spoke in Hebrew and then in Greek. It was given to common people that spoke those languages. And emphatically, what we're saying denies that we need some kind of a special magical decoder ring or something like that to get some esoteric hidden meanings that nobody would figure out for thousands of years until somebody came up and broke the code. Well, what do we have here in 2 Timothy chapter 3? In verses 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Theologian Herman Hoeksema, he put it very simply with respect to what this, these verses teach. There is no separate God meaning for the words that are in the Bible that's different from man's meaning of those words. There isn't some kind of a mysterious God meaning that people can't figure it out because it's so different than man meaning. It's ordinary words that are to be taken in their ordinary sense. And either he says, is there some kind of a divine logic that's different from human logic? Because otherwise, we couldn't communicate God's truth to one another. God couldn't communicate as it were the scripture, couldn't communicate God's truth if this was the case. Physicist Dr. Russell Humphreys, he offers what we might call the Timothy test as we read the Bible. And that's why I had you turn to this passage in Timothy. And he says with respect to the interpretation, to make these points of a plain meaning of scripture a little clearer, imagine the Jewish Christian of the first century who understands Greek, Hebrew, and the scriptures well. Let's call him Timothy, since Paul's protege was called that. But let's also imagine that this Timothy knows nothing of the advanced scientific knowledge of his day. We're not talking about our day, but back Two millennia ago, he doesn't really know all the scientific stuff. He hasn't read Aristotle, who was one of the great scientific thinkers of that particular day, for instance. He doesn't know about that, all that. All that Timothy knows is from either everyday experience or careful study of scripture, which Paul says is sufficient for wisdom. Verse 15, it's able to make you wise. It's able to teach you the truth. Now, if scripture really is straightforward and sufficient, then the meaning that Timothy derives from the words is probably the meaning that God intended for everybody to get. And so I think that this is a fair test, the Timothy test, that the way Timothy would have read it in his setting, then understanding those words, those, that language, it wasn't some kind of a, of a mysterious thing that some kind of a shaman has to come along with with the, you know, he's going to maybe make some smoke going up in front of him and he can see some esoteric hidden things. And, and it wasn't until hundreds of years later that that guy came along that he figured it all out. No. 
It's plain, straightforward revelation, God speaking to man. And that's what we have in Genesis 1. But then by way of a fourth reputation, the days of Genesis 1 were deliberately numbered by the author. Maybe you could turn back with me now again to Genesis chapter 1. The days of this chapter, they were deliberately numbered. Now to the advocates of the framework view, the numbers that are assigned to each of these days, they really have little meaning apart from providing the numbers to these frames and so that day one corresponds to day four as it's on your chart there. But foundational to the use of numbers, why do we use numbers? We use numbers because numbers give us the concept of sequence. This happens, number one. Then this happens, number two. That's the idea of numbers. We use numbers to count. And counting is sequential. And counting is chronological by its very nature. For instance, we use numbers to count the days of the month. Now let's see how this would all work if instead of sequence, we decided to use numbers in a symbolic way. We're going to ditch sequence. doesn't mean that anymore, as these framework people would say about Genesis 1. And today is February 14th, isn't it? All right? Maybe you men, you need to remember, this is Valentine's Day. That's the day that it is. But let's suppose... You just got engaged a couple weeks ago, and now it's February 14th. But to your dismay, on February 14th, your fiancé is nowhere to be found. You give him or a call, and there's no answer. You go to his or her house, and again, there's no sign of your beloved. You call up his or her close friend, and still the mystery's not solved. No fiancé, gone. And to all appearances... Valentine's Day has been completely forgotten. There's no bouquet of flowers at your door, no candy, no card, not even a text message saying Happy Valentine's Day. But at last on the next day you see your beloved. And when you ask what happened, here's the answer you get. Remember he's got, he doesn't think in terms of chronology now with numbers. He thinks in symbolic ways. And this is what he says. Well, you see, I don't use numbers anymore to count the day of the month. I prefer to see numbers as symbols. I found out that in angel numerology, and this is actually something you can find online, I found out that in angel numerology, number 14 is connected with the planet Mercury. And Mercury symbolizes speed. 14 is also associated with knowledge and travel and the exploration of unknown places. So I decided to go away as far as I could yesterday in order to explore a place I had never been to before. And to be really in the spirit of the day, I had to completely absorb myself and getting to that place and block out everything else. So I didn't even think about getting you a card or candy or doing something special together with you. Now what would you think of that excuse for totally ignoring Valentine's Day by your beloved? Would that be something you would say? Well, I, I guess that's, that's just another way of looking at it. You wouldn't think that way, would you? It would bother you a lot. Because it was just absolutely ridiculous. February 14th is the number of the day in which Valentine's Day is to be celebrated. And that's the way you would look at it. That's the way we look at numbers when they give us a sequence. 
Now, obviously, the use of numbers to describe what happened on the first day and then on the second day in Genesis 1, this is meant to indicate what happened on consecutive days. That's the way we number things. It's consecutive. For instance, in chapter 1 here in verse 5, we read that God called the night or the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And then just to skip down to verse 8, and God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. And then verse 13, at the end of the next day, so the evening and the morning were the third day. Now in the numbering of these days in the Hebrew is also related to the use of this vowel consecutive I told you about before. This especially emphasizes chronology. This Hebrew word again, translated and, it's attached to the verb, and this happened, and this happened, or then this happened. And this, while consecutive, remember, is used in the Hebrew narrative to relate consecutive events. And the consecutive nature of these events that are told here in Genesis 1 is emphasized even further when you take that while consecutive and you link it to the numbering of what happened on each of those consecutive days. And the evening and the morning were the first day, etc. Now allow me to use the illustration that I used uh, a couple weeks ago in our last sermon. Somebody tells you his creation story. It's the account of how he built his deck. On the first day we poured the footings and installed the posts. And, this is a while consecutive, and on the second day we constructed the frame and the joists, and on the third day we screwed the deck planks onto the joists, and on the fourth day we built the steps, and on the fifth day we built the rails. Now how would you understand that brief account? You would never think that this creation account was anything but an account, a factual account of what took place chronologically over five days. Now, if the intent of the author of Genesis 1 had been to teach a non-chronological view, like this chart says, it seems very strange that the author goes out of his way to emphasize chronology and sequence. In the hundreds of other cases in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word yom, it's the Hebrew word for day, there are hundreds of times where that Hebrew word is used and it's attached to an ordinal. In other words, the first day or the second day, whatever it is, that's an ordinal. It describes what day it is, the day and then what day it is, first, second, or whatever. It never in any other places means anything but a normal, literal day. But why are we to make it so different here in this chapter? In hundreds, every single one, without exception, it's a literal day. And it's a day that's numbered, either one or two or whatever is said about that day. This is very significant. For instance, in the instructions about the observance of the Passover in Exodus 12 and verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, there's the ordinal, first. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Exodus 24, 16, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This pattern is repeated hundreds of times 
in the Old Testament. And not even once is there an instance of days being numbered or of a day being identified with a certain ordinal that anything other is meant than a normal, literal day. Now this chronological sequence is reinforced by the recurring phrase throughout Genesis 1 and the evening and the morning in connection with the numbering of each day. Now the Hebrews, they tended to regard a day as starting in the evening. The sun goes down, that's the beginning of the next day. That's the way they observe. You remember the Sabbath. And so evening and the morning, that refers to an entire day. They refer to the beginning of the dark part and the beginning of the light part, the morning. And so we see in verse 5 of, of, of Genesis 1, and the God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Again, at the end of verse 8, he called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Verse 13, so the evening and the morning were the third day. This comes right after what is described in terms of the of God uh, causing the, the vegetation to grow on the land. But outside of the book of Genesis, this phrase, evening or morning, or sometimes it's in reverse order, is used in either this order or reverse order 37 times, evening and morning. In all 37 other instances of the words used in, in evening and morning, it's always an ordinary day. You would never, in any place you read of it, uh, interpret it in any other fashion. And if we had time, we could turn to several examples, Exodus 18, 13, and 27, 21, or a couple, but uh, we won't stop to do that. Well, the way the days are numbered, each of which includes an evening and a morning, this conveys the unmistakable impression that the author intends his readers to understand that he is speaking of ordinary consecutive days. The commentator Derek Kidner, he says this, the march of days is too majestic a progress to carry no implication of ordered sequence. It also seems over subtle to adopt a view of the passage which discounts one of the primary impressions it makes on the ordinary reader. So, so much then for the fourth refutation. The days of Genesis are deliberately numbered by the author in a specific way that he gives them here in this chapter. But then I want to come now to a fifth refutation of this framework view. And remember, going through all this, it might seem a little bit tedious, but this is wrecking churches. This is overthrowing the faith of many people in our day. This is a battleground, people. And I don't want, after I'm dead and gone, I don't want somebody to come here and deceive you about this. And so in the fifth place, Genesis 1 describes sudden bursts of creative power, not a prolonged process. And each day, it's a sudden burst of creative power. Each of the, of, the, of the days that are there, there are two features. There's God's command, and then there's God's fulfillment. God says something, and then it's fulfilled. Now, first of all, there is the creative command. Let there be. And the verbs in these commands are a distinctive Hebrew type of verb called the jussive verb. And a jussive verb can be either a command or a request. 
May I have this? That would be a request. Or it could be command. And because this is God speaking, he, it's a command. It's obviously God saying, please do this for me. He, you know, he's, he's, he's saying, let there be. It's a command. It's an order. It's authoritative. And immediately after the first element is the second element, the fulfillment. So we read, for instance, in verse 3, let there be light. That's the command. And immediately, what does it say? And there was light. Never is there any implication that the fulfillment was a gradual process that required long ages to fulfill. Each command was fulfilled suddenly. Verse 3, as we said, let there be light. There was light. Verse 9, for instance, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. That's the command. Let the dry land appear. And then what happens? It, it, it's fulfilled, just as, as God said. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, etc. And what happens? Just as God commands, it takes place. What we have here, dear people, is what theologians call creation by divine fiat. A fiat is an authoritative decree. A king makes a fiat. He makes a decree. But in God's case, it's a decree that's efficaciously fulfilled. You see, kings can make all the decrees they want, but they can't force everybody to keep those decrees. But God makes this decree, you see, and it takes place. He, he brings it to fulfillment immediately. In the case of creation, it's a command that is efficaciously fulfilled suddenly. In, a verse, in Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9, we have a confirmation of the suddenness of God's creative work. I want to read those two verses to you. Psalm 33, verse 6, and then verse 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. You get the suddenness of the impact. He said it, and it's done. He commands it, it stands fast. Well, in these words, there's no thought of a delay of a trial and error process, of gradual step-by-step -step fulfillment, of, of eons evolving from one thing into another, and so forth. In an instant, there's a transition from non-existence to existence. And God said, verse 3, let there be light. There wasn't light before that. And instantly, there's light. In one moment, there's no light. The next moment, there's light flooding the universe. That's the way God created it. And the picture that's given is entirely opposite of waiting billions of years for natural processes to take place. So what we have here in Genesis 1, all the way up to the creation of man, is sudden creation. God does something different with man. And we'll get to that when we expound it. It's not that evolution is the answer, but it's not that he does it by divine fiat. Let there be man, and there is man. There's special, careful, tender involvement that's there. But before we get to man, it's sudden creation at each step, in each instance throughout the whole chapter. Nothing could more powerfully convey the supernatural power of God's creative work. He just speaks the word, it's done. Now, analogous to this, is the absolute suddenness and supernaturalism of God's work of regeneration. 
the first creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the second creation, in making us new creatures in Christ, there is the same suddenness that takes place. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul refers explicitly to the creation account. God said, let there be light. He commanded the light to shine out of darkness, he says. And there was light. And this is what he did when, when we came to faith in Christ. He, he shone the lights into our hearts. We saw Jesus. We saw who he is and what he had done for saving sinners. And, and God instantly, at that moment, he gave us an understanding. And he granted us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the bottom line is this. God is the creator of time, and he needs no time for his creative acts. And we have a remarkable demonstration of divine, instantaneous, miraculous work and many of the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus is God. Jesus spoke the worlds into existence, and Jesus did instantaneous, miraculous work again when he came to the earth. And Jesus, because he's God, he doesn't need prolonged periods to accomplish what he can perform in an instant. For example, he instantly turns water into wine. Fermentation takes months. Not in this case. Instantly it becomes wine. The Cana of Galilee. And often, it's just as it's in the creation week, Jesus gives a command with his miracles. And in an instant, his word is efficaciously accomplished what he had commanded. At his word, he spoke, peace be still to the waters. There's the word. He spoke, and it was done. Instantly, the calm comes upon the waters, and the disciples are stunned at what they have just seen. A fig tree suddenly is withered. A man born blind suddenly has his sight restored. A dead man suddenly stands at the entrance of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. He speaks the word. It happens immediately. And out of the vast numbers of miracles performed by the Lord Jesus, there's only one recorded exception to instantaneous cure, and it's the blind man whose sight was restored in two stages. But even then, each of those two stages were sudden. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, there's this pharmacist over here that's got this concoction to help people see better. And if you take these pills for a period of time, and maybe about three months you'll be able to have a little bit better vision than you have now. No, he doesn't have anything like that. Even in that stage where there's two stages to the healing, it's sudden. Now it appears that word spread very quickly about these sudden cures that Jesus did. And it appears that the word not only spread about the cures that were done, but how sudden they were done, and how they often were done by just Jesus speaking a word. As the psalmist said, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. He spoke, and it was done. Time after time, Jesus, who spoke the worlds into existence, he spoke, and it was done while he was here on earth. And evidently the believing centurion heard about that. He heard about Jesus' powerful word. And he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He heard about that. Jesus just speaks and it's done. 
He doesn't have to come to my house to do it. He can just speak. It'll be done. Now it should be noted that in Genesis 1, the same suddenness that accompanied the creation of inanimate things, in other words, things like the water being separated from waters or the water from the land, the same suddenness that accompanied that creation, it characterized the creation of living things. They didn't involve. It was a sudden creation of the creatures. God chose to use previously created inorganic substances, however, in those instances. He did create them out of nothing. But he, he commanded, and suddenly it takes place. He commands the waters to bring forth marine creatures and birds on the fifth day. Genesis 1, verses 20 to 23. And what happens? He makes the command. The, the, the sky is filled with birds. The sea is filled with millions of fish. But as John Wickham observes, the water of itself contributed nothing to the complex physical structure and life principle of these animals. Just as the water that Jesus used at Cana of Galilee could never have turned into wine, even if it vibrated with evolutionary anticipation in those stone jars for millions of years. In both cases, complex entities appeared suddenly, even though built upon pre-existent lifeless materials. The earth was commanded by God to bring forth trees, but this doesn't apply a gradual growth process any more than God's use of the same earth to bring forth the full-grown body of a man at a later time in the creation week. So this is our fifth refutation, the fact that we have here an account of sudden bursts of creative power, not a prolonged process. But then in the sixth place, the rest of the Bible interprets Genesis 1 as straightforward literary history, literal history. Now, one of the great principles of, of biblical interpretation that was established by the Reformers back in the Protestant Reformation is that where there are more difficult passages of Scripture, the clear passages interpret the ones that are not quite so clear. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so let's assume that this is a difficult text. I don't believe it's really a difficult text. It's a straightforward text, Hebrew, uh, Genesis 1. It's just that all these theories have made it difficult. But it's very simple. It's very not a difficult text in and of itself. But let's suppose it is a difficult text. And this leads us to ask, well, then how does the rest of Scripture treat Genesis, the Genesis creation account? And I want to just say by way of summary, I am completely unaware of even one passage in the rest of the Bible that unequivocally would lead us to interpret Genesis 1 as poetry or as figurative or as not being understood in a historical manner. And furthermore, I'm completely unaware of any passage that would lead us to deny the sequence of creation on the six days in the order that they're given. You take the Old Testament, especially significant is the way Exodus 20 Verses 8 through 11 assumes a straightforward understanding of the creation week. The reason given for keeping the Sabbath is the example that God gave in creating in six days and then resting on the seventh. And so we read in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. 
Now, each of these days were geological ages, and this wasn't just six chronological 24-hour days, if, if that wasn't the case. How would this be an example to people as to how to work six days and rest the seventh day? They would say, okay, well, I'll rest, I'll, I'll work for six ages, I'll, I'll, I'll work until I'm 60, then I'll take my retirement, that'll be my Sabbath. No, they wouldn't be that, but God is wanting them to, to work six days and then work and then rest on the seventh day. And uh, so it's clear the days, they're not a poetic framework. It is not to be interpreted as, as, uh, as something that's poetic and non-sequential. And how, therefore, if it, if it was, if, if, if Genesis 1 was not in order, a chronology of the days, how would that provide the example of God's people of what day, number of days are to, to, to work and then what number of days are to rest? It's obvious. Genesis 31.17 also treats the days of Genesis 1 as literal days that form a pattern to be followed by working six days and resting the seventh. In that passage, the reason for observing the Sabbath is this, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Psalm 104, we don't have time to go into it, but there's a lot of parallel to the order that's there, that psalm. Now there, that chapter is poetic, poetic account of creation, but it's interesting how the order corresponds even to the days that we read in Genesis chapter 1. And we could come to the New Testament. The New Testament references to Genesis 1 to 11, they're consistently treating it as straightforward history. As Professor Douglas Kelly observes, that no amount of exegetical straining can find the slightest poetic view of Genesis 1 to 11 in the books of the New Testament. One can disagree with the New Testament's literal historical usage of Genesis 1 to 11, but one can't honestly find its pages anything less than a straightforward reading of these chapters as literal, relevant facts. Every single reference in the New Testament takes it as literal. And none of them, they, they give us any idea that this is non-historical, non-chronological. Henry Morris has given a summary of the New Testament. He says the New Testament if anything, is even more dependent on Genesis than the old. There are at least 165 passages in Genesis that are either directly quoted or clearly referred to in the New Testament. Many of them are alluded to more than once, so that there are at least 200 quotations or allusions to Genesis in the New Testament. And it's significant that the portion of Genesis that is especially the focus of the greatest attacks of skepticism and unbelief, the first 11 chapters. These 11 chapters are quoted in the New Testament more than any part of the rest of the Old Testament. There are over 100 quotations or direct references to Genesis 1 to 11, and none of them treats it as anything other than straightforward history. Well, we could go into more of that, but I, I want to close with a couple thoughts here. I want, to, I want to emphasize that having gone through this refutation, we want to protect you against a false theory. But I trust that as we open up these chapters, you're going to see the importance of interpreting these chapters as straightforward history. And today I want to close that by focusing on the picture that God is best seen when we take them as straightforward history. There's two things that this teaches us about God. 
The God of Genesis 1, first of all, is the God of history. The Bible begins by presenting a grand display of the creative power of God. Right away, it presents a God who is over history, a God who creates history, and a God who enters history. Now, you don't have this when you, when you read the Koran. There's no history there. You don't, you don't see what God did, Allah did. But he's pictured as remote, as some spiritual being way off in the distance, outside of history. And Muslims are puzzled, therefore, when they read the Bible because it's got so much history. And the reason it's got history is because this actually happened. And we have a God that enters into history. We have a God, you see, that isn't just some abstract idea. He comes down to the level of you and me. And especially he does so in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He penetrates history that he might redeem us from our sins. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of Great Britain in the last century, he said, our Christian faith is based entirely upon history. It is quite unique because it is teaching which is based upon history. Our Christian faith is entirely is contrast to Buddhism and Hinduism. It calls attention to facts, the Garden of Eden, the flood, various facts. He starts listing them there. And these are all the facts that are stressed right at the very beginning of the Bible. We have a God that enters into history. And so, dear young people, if you're tempted to think that that this is just a strange abstract thing that these people do when they come and sing hymn to this God and, and they, they talk about this God and they read this book that they call the God book, that, that this, is, this is something you just can't relate to and it is something you see that the people of the world can't relate to. But this is a God that's come into history to save sinners from their sins. He made you. You will give an account to him someday. And he sent his son into history to save you from your sins. But then one more thing. The God of Genesis 1 is the all-powerful God who speaks, and it is done. At his word, the universe springs into existence. At his word, light bursts forth. The waters above and the waters below separate. At his word, the oceans and skies are filled with millions of creatures. He's a big God, a powerful God. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I believe he was pastor at one time of the 10th Presbyterian Church, if I'm not mistaken. I should have looked this up, but I think he was pastor there early on, earlier on in the 20th century. And he gave an idea about one of his professors. He says, I learned the idea of a great God and a little God from my old Hebrew professor of Hebrew, Robert Dick Wilson. Wilson was of the intellectual glories of Princeton Theological Seminary in the days of Warfield, Davis, Machen, and others. After I'd been away from the seminary for about 12 years, I was invited back to preach to the students. Old Dr. Wilson came into the Miller Chapel. He sat down near the front while I set forth the word of God. At the close of the meeting, the old gentleman came up to me cocked his head on one side in his characteristic way, extended his hand, and he said, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. In other words, he says, I come to hear my former students one time. He's getting very old. He's frail. 
but I'm glad that you're a big daughter. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big daughters or little daughters. And then I know what their ministry will be. Well, I asked him what he meant, and he said this. Well, some men, they have a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of Scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those that have a great God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. He paused for a moment, and he said, God bless you. And then he walked out. And then Pastor Barnhouse observes this, that men are always in difficulty with their faith because their God is too small. And if they see the true God and get the perspective that sees him as filling all in all, then the difficulties of life will rapidly diminish to their proper proportion. God knows all, is all-powerful, unchanging, eternal, never failing. Your people, our country's in a mess. I don't need to go into details. We've been witnessing chaos. We've been witnessing problems that we wonder how they will ever be corrected in our country. And we sometimes fear. Our country's gone through a terrible trial with this, with this uh, virus. We don't need a little God people in these days. We need a big God. A God that we can trust in. We need the God that spoke the world into existence, and it came out, just like he said. We need to be big godders. We need to be big godders as, as God's preachers. But all of you as God's people, as you would commend the gospel, the word of God, to others, to this sick and dying generation. And if you're here today and you have not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, I want to tell you that it doesn't matter how bad your sins are, how many they are, how great they are, He's a big God. He saves the worst kinds of sinners. He saves people that have sinned against light, people that have rejected truth for years. He saves even people like you. And I want you to come to him and put your trust in him and say, Lord, I'm I'm a rough case here. I've done this, I've done that. But I call upon you, Lord God Almighty, you who spoke the world into existence, won't you speak into my heart and give me a new heart won't you speak into me and enable me to put on my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him and in him alone let's pray Father we thank you and bless you that you are a big God you spoke and it was done we thank you Lord that You came into this world, Lord Jesus. You did the same thing again. You acted like the creator that you are. You spoke and people were healed. You spoke and water was turned into wine. Oh Lord our God, we do thank you and bless you that we can still come to you and put our faith in you. And we pray that you would help us to trust in you in these days when our country is in such a desperate condition. In these days when biblical truth are under attack as never before in our country, when more and more people ridicule the teaching of Genesis chapter 1, 
following chapters as well. Enable us, O Lord, not to be intimidated by, by these ones that come with their scientific degrees and come with their oppression of being scholarly and being, and being uh, those that know better than we. For we know, O Lord, that your word endures forever. It is true. It is right. It depicts that one that speaks unto us. And we hear, and our hearts are changed. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of some that are in this room even and bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to behave as those that have confidence that you are the big God that you are. And that we can therefore believe what Genesis 1 teaches and we can tell others about it without apology. Enable us, O Lord, to believe you and trust in you just like the centurion did in the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.